video belongs in youth group. It does. Um, and we've used that. And so I walk up here and I feel that makes me feel really comfortable. Um, and it uh, makes me feel uh, it's what we've been doing downstairs. Uh, you know, I don't speak a lot up here, but I do occasionally. And every now and then somebody will say to me, you should really preach more. And usually what I would say back is I preach every week. It's just on Wednesday night down in the bottom of the building where people don't normally see me. Um, you know, we have a, a lot of kids doing a lot of awesome stuff down there. Um, you know, I was thinking as we were worshiping uh, that the guy over on the drums, you may or may not been, have been able to see him because he's kind of hidden back there. But Nathan came into our student ministry as this little skinny freshman boy and uh, was just young and didn't know the Lord and uh, didn't know how to play drums and, um, you know, come, came to know Jesus. Uh, we baptized him here. He said, I want to do uh, everything in my life to serve the Lord and is pursuing how he can creatively serve the Lord through a form of music ministry. And, um, you know, it makes me just proud to see him do that. But I was also thinking about um, the guy on acoustic guitar, Ben, who is up here, you know, Ben's in our student ministry now, and he's never been up here playing guitar until today um, and was up here and doing good stuff. And, um, you know, I look out here and I see a lot of your faces that we've been together for a long time. And I want you all to know that when Scott says we uh, we've been doing this series together with the student ministry, you may not see a lot of stuff happens downstairs and a lot of good that the Lord's doing. Um, in that ministry there with students. But I get the uh, to fill in for Scott today. Chris mentioned that he was gone. I don't think Chris mentioned that he's at Wheaton College, which is where Scott graduated for. Did you know that he's, it's his 20-year college reunion? Like, I was thinking about that today. I was like, man, he is old. Like... <laughs> 20 years from being done with college. You know, sometimes we watch college football and it's like, man, I was just in college yesterday. And uh, 20 years um, he's graduated from Wheaton College. So that's where he is. And I get to finish up this series called Wired. We've been talking about how God's wired us for specific things. And this is the last week in that. Next week we'll start a series called Power Play. Uh, we'll be doing that together with our students as well. That one is about influence and so how we use and how we utilize our influence. So that'll be called Power Play and we'll start that one next week. Let me just talk about Wired and ask you about a phrase. I'm looking around and I'm thinking, you know, there are people sitting in here. Um, I think most of us here have heard this phrase, I've got my wires crossed. And you kind of know that when we say I crossed my wire or got my wires crossed, that it would mean I got confused somehow. But where does that saying come from? I look and I see there are probably people sitting in here today who don't know what a dial tone is. You know, it's really, um, there probably are people who are sitting in here and you don't have a home phone and maybe it never occurred to you that your children don't know what a dial tone is. Um, so much less knowing that before even dial tones, you would pick up that phone and there would be a operator on the other end of the phone and they would say, where can I connect you to? And that there's actually this thing called a switchboard, and it's crazy. I want to show you just a video because you may not have any idea what that looks like. So this is what it looks like to operate a telephone switchboard, um, and these were the operators. And so 
they were kind of saying, let me connect you to so-and-so. And so you would say, call in, uh, talk to the operator and you would say, I'd like to speak to Joe. And then they would connect you to Joe. But sometimes you might say, hey, man, look, that's a, like a lot of wires, right? And that's a, that's a stressful job. Uh, sometimes you might say, I want to speak to Joe. And instead of speaking to Joe, you end up speaking to George. And so they put the wire in the wrong spot. And that's where the saying comes from, you've got your wires crossed. Because they put the wire, instead of connecting your wire to Joe, they connected it to George. And then, I mean, there's all kinds of confusion that goes on there. So that's where that saying comes from. I got your wires crossed. We use it often uh, to just mean I, I misheard or I misunderstood or I'm confused. I was thinking about for me, where are some places where I felt like, um, you know, wires got crossed for me? It's one of those times where, um, I was trying to figure out in my own life, where does that happen? Well, I have this service at home where they, uh, like if you call and leave a voicemail, this machine will transcribe it into text and then they'll send it to me as an email. So I get the voicemail transcribed to text by a machine as an email. And because we have the benefit of living in East Tennessee, we also have people who don't always talk in ways that that machine might hear correctly. And so... I often get some interesting things transcribed. I searched a few of them just in my email to see where did uh, this uh, service get those wrong. I was We were at Lowe's recently to look for some new carpet. And uh, so the guys from the flooring department in Lowe's were calling and, you know, following up with us about getting carpet. And so we got a voicemail and it transcribed to me. It said, hello, this is Lowe's foreign department. And I thought, foreign department? Then I have foreign relations department at Lowe's. And, um, you know, what they heard was, you know, some of you are like, well, what's the, you hear foreign, 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 foreign. Like when you hear that, you think, well, that's the same thing. Well, my voicemail misheard that one. We also just recently had a baby and she's a month old uh, yesterday and her name's Julia. We were at the hospital and then, you know, they call and they check on you after you leave, which is pretty cool. And so they called and they said, hey, I'm just calling to check on the baby. And they wanted to check how the feedings were going. And so the voicemail I got said, we're calling to check on the feeding and the deans or no, the baby and the deans. And it was supposed to be the baby and the feedings. And I thought, what are the deans? You know, and if you have a kid who goes to Tusculum View, like, you know, you're on this auto call thing and old Pat Donaldson calls you all the time. Right. And so she always says the same thing. You know, she says, Good evening, Tusculum View families. This is your principal, Pat Donaldson. And so I've heard that like a thousand times, it feels like. And some of you who are Tusculum View families, you know this. Uh, But Tusculum View seems like a hard one for our computer to get right. So Tusculum View, it has been good evening, Costco families. Um, (laughs) That that has come out. And then also... um, I don't know what Tesco is, if that's like a company, but we've been Tesco families in my voicemail before. Also, it was good evening, South Columbia families. Um, that's what it got for Tusculum View. And listen, why, it's easy to get, you know, your wires crossed. It's easy to think your coach says, hey, we got practice Monday at three. And then you don't show up because you thought they said, hey, Monday, you're free. Um, and uh, you, you don't do that. I don't know what it might look like for you, you know, real personal for me growing up. My mom, 
we have four kids. Uh, I, had, um, I was one of four siblings. And so my mom, if you know her, she's not the most calm individual. Um, she tends to get worked up. And, uh, you know, as kids, you see that and like, I mean, we're going to work that, right? We're going to heckle her. And so like she would start to get really worked up and then she'd start stuttering and saying the wrong name. And Tom, Ryan, and she'd start saying the wrong name and she would get her wires crossed and she would get all confused. And we would laugh. You know, I don't know for you where you feel like your wires get crossed if you're in school. You have a lot of teachers and demands that come along with that. You have multiple classes. You have all these different homework assignments. Then you might be involved in clubs or in sports. And so your coach has different demands. And then you have friends there at school. And all of this together, it just feels like there's so many wires I just... Don't want to cross the wrong one. And you know, some of you are like, hallelujah, I am done with school. Um, but the same can happen at work, right? And at work, yeah, actually I googled um, office drama, just those two words, office drama. That was fun. Um, I just want to show you the first image that came up for office drama was this one here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach back and correct this wire here, so you just look at that picture because that's fun while I do this. Um, but this picture came up for, um, for office drama, and I thought, you know, the first, the whole results there of what office drama was was talking about how you can deal with drama in the office and how you can um, deal with coworkers who are stressing you out how you can deal with uh, things that are like stresses from your bosses, like all these articles, and that was one that um, was how to diffuse office drama. And uh, so it has all of these tips that you would give for what you do in your office. And I know if you work in an office somewhere, you know what this is like. You've got office drama with the coworkers. You're fr- like, what do I say? Because it's strange, it's tense. You know, your boss is pressing down on you with all these deadlines. And, you know, and so you've got... So many different pressures, whether you're in school, whether you have work. And in our attempt to juggle all of that, it's hard to not cross the wrong wire. I was thinking about what that might feel like. And I watch um, a lot of action-type shows or movies, and it reminded me of those scenes in those movies where they're trying to defuse a bomb, you know, and you've got the wires there, and so then they've usually got a headset on kind of, a funny looking one like I have uh, on and they're listening to their friend and it's do I cut the blue wire or the red wire and and you know it's ticking down right about to hit zero and you're in your seat and you're just tense and you're feeling it right along with how well how they're trying to get that done just in time I watched growing up MacGyver man he was good at that right MacGyver could could figure out how to diffuse it. He always knew how to do that, right? And you felt like, oh, if MacGyver were just here. You know, sometimes uh, for relational drama, for relational tension, when we feel like we've got all these wires and we don't know which one to cross, we're afraid that if we cross the red with the green, then it's an explosion. If we snip the wrong wire, then something bad's going to happen and we just feel stuck in this tension, these moments where relationships come to a, a head and it feels hard, it feels difficult, and it feels crazy. In the midst of that, what do you do? In those moments where you feel like it's a ticking time bomb, what do you do? The point for you is not that you have 
a bomb squad and you're trying to defuse a bomb. But the point for you is that you know what it feels like to be in the midst of relational tension. All of us in this room know what it feels like to be in the midst of relational tension. And we, in those moments where you feel that, what do you do? How do you respond? We all kind of have a way that we respond. If you're in a life group, then you can look in your uh, worship guide today. Question number two for your life group is asking you that. How do you typically respond to tension in a relationship? Now, it's fall break week, and a lot of your life groups are not meeting. So let me just ask whether you are in a life group or not, or maybe you're not sure if you're going to do those questions. Would you, on your own, answer that second question? I I can't give all the ways you respond. I just want to give two examples of the way I think we respond to tension in relationships. I think one way that we tend to respond is just by not caring, that we'll kind of get this feeling where you say, I can't care, I don't care. And, and you know, people, you just don't want to have to worry about setting off the explosion. So then you feel like it's your job to actually make it explode. Um, and so then you feel like, well, I've just got to deal with it by just going in and i got to tell it like it is. And, uh, you know, people who often don't care use this phrase a lot, I'm just saying. They say that and then they deliver a truth that often hurts. And let's be honest, we know there's a difference between speaking truth in love and just being mean. And sometimes when we don't care, we have a tendency to just be mean. When we don't care, we have a tendency to just be cold and harsh. And sometimes in the midst of a relational tension, we just stop caring. Another thing that we do is that we live in fear. We may live in fear because you're You've heard that phrase, you're just walking on eggshells, or you just feel like you're just so afraid of causing the explosion. You're so afraid of doing anything that you're just terrified. You're frozen. We feel like you can't ever really just be comfortable and relax because there's always tension. And so you're worried, you tiptoe around, and you stress out about what to say. Because if you say just the wrong word, or you make the wrong move, or you forget one small detail, everything is going to fall apart. And so we live in fear, and rather than addressing the relationship, we can sometimes tend to isolate ourselves. You know, I know that if we took the time today, everyone in here could say, you know, when I get in relational tension, I tend to do this. Would you take that time on your own? Because it's important for you to consider, what do you do when you hit relational tension? Now listen, I'll be the first to say, for me, as an introvert, a lot of times I feel like the right answer is to go to a deserted island. You know, I would feel like, relational tension, I know what I can do. I can go live in a cave by myself in the woods. And, you know, I just want to be all alone. Of course, I want Netflix or something like that. But, you know, all alone by myself. And, you know, that sounds so appealing sometimes. That the right thing is just to go be by myself and... Listen, that may be okay for a short period of time, but ultimately, the truth that we're going to talk about today is that ultimately, that's not our best long-term plan. Ultimately, we're wired for something different. Ultimately, God has wired us for something else. We've talked in this series for the past two weeks. We've looked at Genesis right at the beginning because we said, if we want to figure out how we're wired, let's look at the creation account. So the first week, 
We looked at how God created all the things we see around us, all the trees and the plants and the animals. And we said God's wired uh, all of the stuff around us to reveal who he is. And actually your responses that week on these cards were responding, here's how I see God's wiring in nature. And then in the second week we looked and we said um, God has wired us um, and God has created us. And, and so we looked at Genesis where God created man. And the cool thing that happens in Genesis chapter 1, if you notice all throughout that, is that it says when God created uh, all of these things, he said it's good. It's good. And we noticed that and we talked about how that changes us. When we see how God sees us, it changes how we see ourselves. We talked about that last week. This week we want to look and see something that's not in Genesis 1 but in Genesis 2. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn there or just grab your, uh, this worship guide here. Hopefully you have one with you. Um, because I printed just two scriptures there and then there's some blank space that you can write some phrases in. But um, Genesis 2.18, let's look on there and just read this together. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit. For him. Now listen, I want you to grab a pen or a pencil, and maybe you want to write this in your Bible, but at least in the worship guide here, you can underline just these two words, not good. Underline those words. And like half of you are still staring at me like, like really, grab this paper, take a pencil. I'm just teasing. Y'all got y'all to get like right stuff down here. Um, so y'all are, y'all are working on it. And some of you are sharp. Some of you are underlining that. And some of you are like, I know where you're going because there's another scripture right there. And look what that says. Y'all are smart. You know this. Genesis 1:31. What do you think you're going to underline? Those words, very good. God saw everything had made and behold, it was very good. So you've underlined two phrases there, not good and very good. Let me tell you why I asked you to do that. I want you to see that all throughout Genesis 1, we learn that God sees and knows what is good. God knows what is good. God uh, gives us the understanding, this is good. And then in Genesis 2, when God sees the man alone, he says, it's not good. It's not good. When God made man, he said it's not good to be all alone. And what we know from that is that at our very core, in the way that God has made us and the way that he has wired us, is to not be alone, it's to be in community. You know, we certainly do have moments where being on a deserted island would be wonderful. But we know and we need to recognize, even though it's challenging, that what's good for us is to be in community. That God says it's not good for man to be alone. So when you think about community, that God's wired you for community, what thoughts come to your mind when you think community? How do you frame that thought of God wiring me to be in community? Do you think maybe of a HOA, Homeowners Association? Do you think maybe of a country club community? Maybe you are thinking of a church community. Maybe you're thinking about your neighborhood or a sports team. I don't know what you're thinking about when it comes to community. But I want to look at a scripture that Jesus helps us understand what does it mean to be wired for community. It's in Matthew chapter 22, and let's see how 
Jesus teaches here, starting in verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying don't just be in community. Love your community. Jesus says don't just be in community. Love your community. When he says love your neighbor, it means you don't just exist in the community. You love your community. And you think, well, that's nice and that's a good teaching, you know, to love my community. That's a great teaching. You could tweet that out and that would be a wonderful thing. People would say that's a really good teaching. And, you know, I'd, I'd just tell you that's not actually a new teaching. Um, we could see that in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is something that for generations and generations, people knew, I am to love my neighbor. But what the Jews had done with this is they were really trying to figure out who is my neighbor. Like, could I define that? And so the lawyer actually asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? If you look at that question in Luke chapter 10, verse 29, this lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he actually responds back with a parable you may be familiar with. It's a parable of a, about the Good Samaritan. And it's a, it's a parable that Jesus tells, and he kind of shares this story about how uh, Jews, well, let me tell you some background. Jews had always felt like my neighbor would be my fellow Jew. But if you're outside of that, if you're not a Jew, then it's totally justifiable that I hate you. And so they felt totally justified in hating a Samaritan. Well, there was a Jew who needed help, and then other Jews walked past, and they tend to just walk on and ignore the man who needed help. And then the Samaritan comes by and offers help to the man who's in need, and you think that doesn't make sense. Don't they hate each other? And Jesus doesn't say that's what being a neighbor is. He says, who acted like a neighbor? And if you're familiar with that parable, you know that what Jesus did is he flipped the question on the lawyer. He flipped the question and he tried to say, this is what it looks like to be a neighbor. And I think about what it means for us to love our neighbor. And I know that, you know, we don't have that same hang up of Jew and Samaritan. But what you and I like to do, here's how I would put it. We love to agree with loving my neighbor is right in an abstract kind of way. Maybe I would say in a more anonymous kind of way. We like to say, I would love my neighbor when there's no specific thing attached to it, when it's abstract. But when you start to attach a real person with real needs to that, that's when it starts to become challenging for us. Because we often will define neighbor very abstractly. And it becomes very difficult when we start to make it specific. It's not hard to love our neighbor when they're really similar to us. It's not hard to love the people who maybe live in the same neighborhood as you because they probably are much like you. It's not hard to love the people who cheer for the same sports team as you. 
It's not hard to love people as long as they're lovable. But as soon as somebody stops being lovable, as soon as they start liking things that we don't like, as soon as they start um, being unlovable in our eyes, we find it very difficult to actually love them. You see, the real challenge for us is that when we recognize Jesus' teaching is not an abstract ideal, it's not just this wonderful principle that we would say, that's a good thing, I'll strive for that. It's when we really start to make it about real people. Now, let's be honest. You know, we talked about what the, the culture of the Jews and the Samaritans was like, but what's the culture like in East Tennessee? I grew up in East Tennessee, and so I feel uh, well qualified to talk about the world in which I grew up in. I grew up in Johnson City, just up the road, and I grew up um, at Boone's Creek Christian Church, and that was my home church. I was baptized there when I was in fifth grade. Um, and what a cool t- way, ability to live uh, in the same kind of East Tennessee area. I, I think we're blessed to live in East Tennessee. We have a really cool area to live in. One of the things that happens in East Tennessee, though, is that we, um, we're we really good at following rules kind of externally and making it look like man, we are good people. And we're great at that. In fact, I think in East Tennessee that we are drawn to following rules well. We'll shape our lives in such a way that we are disciplined, that we go to work when we're supposed to go to work, that we do what we're supposed to do, that we have good manners. We'll say, yes, ma'am, and no, sir. But you know, one of the things that also happens in East Tennessee is that we're really good at focusing on those external things and forgetting about our heart. We're really good at, at focusing on all the stuff that makes me look like I love my neighbor, but we forget to actually love them in our heart. We're really good at trying to make this something where, just like that lawyer, what exactly do I need to do because I want to make sure it looks like I do those things because I want to follow the rules. But we forget, much like the Pharisees, much like the legalist, that it starts with the heart. We get it backwards, and Jesus flipped the parable on purpose because it doesn't start with the external rules. It starts with the heart. I get this backwards. You get this backwards. We often forget it begins with our heart. And here's what I want you to know today, that because you love, you will fulfill all of those rules. That's what Jesus is teaching. Because you're loving, really, from your heart, all those rules will get fulfilled. When you love God first and you love your neighbor, the entire law and prophets hang on those two commands. Love God, love your neighbor. Galatians 5.14 actually says it well here. It says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God wholeheartedly, you're not going to come short in meeting the law. If you love God wholeheartedly, you're not going to come short at following all the rules. You're not going to come short at that. You're not going to mess up on doing what's right to other people if you love God and love others. Stop being a legalist. Stop looking at the external. Stop being a Pharisee. I know we're good at it. I am too. But are you concerned with God's law? Are you? 
then love God and love others. All of it will fall into place. Love God and love others. And that's really easy to do, right? I mean, I could end the sermon there. I've got two minutes left on my countdown on the wall. Um, I could end the sermon there, but there's a big problem that we would forget to talk about, and that's that sin really messes that whole thing up, right? I mean, sin really messes it up. And we could talk, I could actually give a whole sermon probably about how just the sin of pride can destroy community. When we're prideful, community falls apart. I mean, I could talk about that, but I won't. I'll talk about another form of pride. I'll talk about a pride of lions, right? I mean, I was in Africa this summer. Why not talk about lions? And, you know, we were with some students in Africa, and we actually got to go out into, like, the real deal wilderness and hunt. Crazy. Um, So we're out with some Maasai guys who have some real weapons, and we kind of have our little clubs. Um, And we are going at night through the African wilderness, and let me just tell you, there could be lions. Like, actually could be. Not going to lie, we were scared. I mean, a little bit. We try to pretend like we weren't, but we know how lions work, right? They isolate their prey. A pride of lions will isolate a zebra from the herd and then take them down. You know how that works? Maybe you've not seen it. You should watch some of the National Geographic channel. It's pretty interesting stuff. The pride isolates the zebra from the herd. And they get taken down. Well, the story from Africa is this. We're hunting. It's nighttime. Ryan Hamilton takes and throws his club at an animal. Misses it by a long shot, of course. Um, I'm just teasing you, Ryan. But he does miss. And he misses and he's thinking, oh, no, I've got to go find my club. I mean, we've bought these at the souvenir market. And I've got to go find my club because that's my man stick, you know. And... So he's like going, he's looking in the bushes for his club, and he's thinking, he's realizing that while he's looking for this, that everyone else is kind of running off following the animal. And he's realizing, he's thinking, okay, find my club or stay with the Maasai people who know where we're at, find my club or be all alone in African world. I think I'm going to leave the club. And so he left it, and he got back as quickly as possible to the people. Listen, you know what we did? We stuck as, like, close as we could to those Maasai. We did not want to be by ourselves. You know, the Bible talks about Satan being like a lion. And the reality of sin is that Satan, just like lions, will isolate us. Isolate us from community and take us out. You know, sin destroys community. Sin destroys community. And you know, a pride of lions will isolate you and take you out. And sinful pride and other sinful activities will isolate you from the way God's wired you. It's scary. It's hard. We can be fearful. You know, if I'm honest with you, I would say I'm fearful. Um, Because I think if I really took Jesus at His Word... He's asking me to do something I'm afraid to do. If I really took Jesus at His word, He's asking me to love other people and I get scared about that because I feel like if if I really followed Him, maybe you feel this too. If I really loved others, then maybe I would not be able to love myself. Sometimes we feel like if we took Jesus seriously, 
then he's asking us to love others instead of ourselves, and that's not what he's asking us to do. He's not asking you to love others instead of yourself. You know, we worry a lot that if we stop hoarding things for ourselves, then we're not going to have enough. We worry that if we stop ensuring our happiness, then we won't find happiness. We worry that if I stop collecting stuff for me, if I stop caring for me, then I'm going to end up at a loss. It's a real worry, and believe me, I feel it. I wish I could stand here and tell you that loving other people was easy. It's not easy. I wish I could tell you that it was simple. It's not. It's complicated. It's complicated and it's hard. And it's incredibly draining. It's draining and exhausting because when we sacrifice, it can, you can feel like you're so empty and alone and hopeless. And fear will drive that in you. I just want to give you a secret today. A secret that I feel like will fix that. You know what the secret is? Something you already know. The secret is that you would remember whenever you felt the most joyful in your life, whenever you felt as happy as you could ever feel, whenever you felt the most secure, God provided that. God provides your joy. God provides your happiness. God provides your security. The secret is that we forget. We think that our self-love provides all of those things. And that because I care for myself and take care of myself, then I'm happy and secure and joyful. And we forget the secret. God provides that. When you can center all of your longings for happiness and all of your longings for joy, and you can center that on God. In other words, when you can love God with all abandonment, when you can furiously love God, then you'll find that you're not so worried about collecting all of those things out of self-love. Let me say it another way. Because God provides it for you anyway, you're not loving other people because of you. You're not loving other people because you're a rockin' awesome Christian. That's not why you're loving other people. You're loving other people because you love God. That's why you're loving others. The Bible teaches something I think that's a little stronger. John writes to a group of churches and they were having a really difficult time with this. They were in a hard time loving one another. And John writes this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. It says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, do, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's really not possible to love God and not love others. It's just not possible. So I would ask you today, do you love others? Do you really love them? And don't give yourself a nice answer because we're sitting in church together. Don't make yourself feel good because that's what you're used to on Sunday if you don't need to be feeling good right now. Do you really love others? Do the way you act toward other people out of a spirit of love? Or is it just external kindness and nicety? Do you really love others in the way that you love yourself? 
Let me just tell you, I wrote in my notes, I wrote this, just writing these questions is revealing how deep selfishness goes into my heart. It's a quote from my notes. Don't justify your attitude today if you don't need to. Don't justify your attitude to say something like this. We say this a lot. I love others, but I don't have to like them. Don't use that to justify what's going on in your heart. You know, I have a hard time with this. And I bet you do too. Let me tell you what I do. I pray. I pray a prayer that God would allow me to see other people the way he does. I say, God, help me. Because I'm having a hard time. Would you help me see other people the way you do? Let me pray that prayer for you right now. Father, would you give us today, all of us sitting here in this room, would you give us eyes to see our neighbor the way you do? Because our eyes see them through the stain of our own sin. When we look at other people, we, we can't help but see them in the wrong way. We need your help. We need you to help us see them differently. God, we need your grace that allows us to see them as you do. And God, would you grip our hearts the way yours is gripped? Would you move our hearts the way yours moves so that we could love people the way you love them? God, all of us in here are selfish. We mess up all the time. We choose ourselves when we shouldn't and we sin. God, some of us in here just check out. Would you forgive us for that? God, would you forgive us for giving up and not trying? God, today forgive us for being cold. Forgive us for being mean. Forgive us for being so fearful. Increase our faith. Increase our faith so that we can live out what you've called us to do. Teach us to trust you. God, your word says that perfect love will cast out fear, and I ask for that today. So that your love would be on display. And pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.